0: In this episode of the Considering Christ podcast, me and Daniel discuss the greatest threats to Christianity. How do you kill Christianity? Do you kill it by burning down church buildings, throwing Christians into prison, and putting them to death? Or is Christianity something that can only be fought on a spiritual battlefield rather than a physical one? My name is Tyler, and I am joined with my best friend Daniel, and this is the Considering Christ podcast. (music) Hello and welcome to the Considering Christ podcast. My name is Tyler, and I'm joined my be- with my best friend Daniel. And today, we're going to talk about the greatest threats to Christianity. Uh, Daniel, what do you believe is one of the greatest threats to Christianity, in, in your opinion, in your well-studied opinion?
1: Like, what is the greatest threat to Christianity? Or one of them?
0: One, I, I imagine. I imagine you have a list. Uh, I have. I have a short list. What is one? of the greatest threats to Christianity that you can think of?
1: Um, well, I think one of the first ones that I can think of is, um, an incorrect perspective of, you know, religion, of God, of Christ and of the Bible. Um, all these things are very essential things to Christianity that are oftentimes misrepresented, misunderstood or misinterpreted. And so, um, when you have an incorrect perspective on religion you have a bias that uh, maybe is against it or for it and you don't look at opposing sides or you don't look at it from a logical perspective but when you finally you know lay down the truths and you determine you know is this logical is christianity logical um is um islamic practices logical is uh, mormonism logical you know are any of these things logical um you have to find out which one is true find out which one is the right way otherwise you know i mean there's there's no point in following those practices so i think one big study that has to be made is whether or not christianity is logical um and that way you can have a correct perspective of religion but another thing is you know we need to have a correct perspective on god if we don't know who God is if we don't know um you know the character and attributes the love and the severity of God that he's both good and a God who is righteous and you know inflicts jud- judgment and justice um a lot of times you know people have a conflicting idea of God as being you know two different gods in the Old Testament and the New Testament well no it's the same God and so I think we have to have a correct perspective on God, but also of Christ, you know, and I think I'll talk about that a little bit later about Christ, uh, but also about the Bible. We need to have a correct perspective of the Bible, you know, that this is truly God's word and that this is something that um, needs to be looked at with a correct, um, well, in the light of its truth, you know, um, that this is historical events. These are accurate teachings and writings and that this really happened, and that it's writings that will change your life. So I think we have to have a correct perspective.
0: Yeah. Um, I think one reason why some people, some Christians may fall away, you know, they may have been raised in the church, uh, you know, they were baptized at you know, whatever age, uh, they decided and made that choice to get baptized but then they end up falling away later on. They end up losing that belief in God. I think it's because they never made their faith their own. And I think in what what you just talked about, I think you touched a little bit on that and how it's very, how important it is to make our faith our own, make understand within our own minds that God is real. It is logical to believe in God, believe that the Bible is His word, that there is no doubt in your mind that the Bible is God's Word, it's very important that we have that understanding. It's very important that we have that perspective like you just talked about. Um, and if we don't, if we fail to teach our children, if, if we fail to teach others about developing your own faith, not just you know taking some blind leap, but actually making the making the decision in your mind, I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to follow God. I believe in God. I believe about the Bible is God's word. It's important to make all that your own.
1: I agree. Um, we need to have not a dependent faith on someone else like our yeah. parents or our friends or our preacher, but it's an independent faith. Yeah, It's a true relationship with God. Um, I think, I think it's a big, a very big thing. Um, we need to teach our children properly. We need to prepare them for the real world and for eternity. Those are two important things. And what's sad is that, you know, of course, people who don't have uh, Christianity, they're not going to train their children up um, in a correct manner of, you know, showing them eternity. But, you know, in some ways, there are a lot who uh, train their children well, preparing them for the real world. You know, they get a job and, Uh, They're also training them to respect people. But in other cases, you know, I mean, sadly, that's not the case. They're not preparing them for the real world, which is the entire um, nature of a parent is to teach their children so that way they can be prepared. But what's sad is from my perspective, at least, whenever I see a lot of young people um, that I encounter, you know, maybe they're in high school or maybe they're in college and they've been trained up as uh, Christians, is that sadly there are some and this is you know just some uh, who are trained up in you know elementary school, really big on you know Christianity. then it's middle school, really big on Christianity. you're trying to train them up so that way they can get baptized. But then it's like they get to high school and you think, well my job's done and you don't really have your hands in their life. you're not really spending a lot of time with them, you're not spending the time to teach them. And continue to teach them and you just neglect to do your responsibility you know they have four more years in their house you gotta you gotta keep teaching them you know and so but the biggest thing is you got to prepare them for eternity and i think that's a great issue in in children is that whenever a parent is lacking the emphasis to show the spiritual things are very 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 important you know that child is going to be left malnourished you know as a christian we have to be people who who are hungry who are thirsty for righteousness who seek after the word of god but if your child isn't that way at a very young age well then i mean it's it's a big problem and it's probably on the side of the parents probably um on the side of their influence as well but we need to bring people up with the bible
0: yeah um you know we just got in talking in or we just talked about, you know, if you don't make your faith your own, if you don't have the right perspective, then you can very easily fall away. Uh, One point I I want to talk about is, uh, I think there's a threat to Christianity going to, going, you know, staying in the subject of, you know, the, the right mindset, having the right mindset. I think Christians can fall away, can fall from grace and probably not even know it. And what I'm talking about is, contentment and no i'm not talking about uh the kind of contentment paul spoke of um you know he he he, uh stated i think it was in philippians um he has learned in whatsoever state that he is in to be uh content i'm not talking about that kind of contentment i'm talking about lukewarmness i'm talking about spiritual contentment um Pretty much, I compare faith to a great white shark. A great white shark, if it stops swimming, then it's going to die. And I compare faith to that. Uh, Faith needs to continue to act. It needs to be active. And if faith stops acting, if faith stops growing, then it's a dead faith. Uh, James talks about this same point in James 2.20, James two. Twenty-two, And then in verse 26, I'll go ahead and just read those verses real quick. James 2.20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? That was verse 20. Verse 22 states, you see that faith was active along with his works, speaking about Abraham, verse 21. And faith was completed by his works. And then verse 26 for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. God's people are not to reach a certain point in their faith and then just stop there. There's not a certain a certain uh, point, a certain goal that they are to reach, and then once they get there, they can sit back and they can relax. No, that's not how it works. God's people are to continue to keep growing and there's a number of verses which talk about this first is hebrews 5 12 to 14 And if you have your bible on you you can go ahead and turn there and read along with me or you can listen along uh, whatever you like but hebrews 5 12 to 14 states for though by this time you ought to be teachers you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of god you need milk not solid food For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, the Hebrews writer, speaking to these people, speaking to his reader, he expected them by this point to be teachers, but they weren't. But what did he expect them to do? He expected them to grow. They weren't to be stagnant, but they were to grow to be teachers, but they weren't, but he expected them to grow. Next is 2 Peter three, eighteen, which states, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Once again, it states, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, First thessalonians 3 6 through 10 this is a very important a very important passage just talking about growing because if you've read the book of uh first thessalonians really he didn't have a lot to tell them that they needed to improve on uh, uh in first corinthians and second corinthians he paul tells them all of these things that they need to work on all these things they need to repent of then when you get over to First Thessalonians, you know, then, then you also have you know Galatians, uh, and Philippians and Colossians. First um, Thessalonians, he hardly tells them anything they need to work on. It's not until Second Thessalonians, this same church, he uh, then corrects them on something they were mis- mis- uh, mistaken on, which was the uh, second coming. But regardless of this, he still tells them that they need to grow they they need to increase uh first Thessalonians 3 6-10 says but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you for this reason brothers in all our distress and affliction we have been comforted about you through your faith for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Did you you hear that? At the the end of verse 10, he says uh, he wishes to be with them so he can supply what is lacking in their faith. Now, if you listen to everything he just said before then, it doesn't sound like they were lacking a lot. He is he is joyful over how faithful they are, how loving they are. He's joyful at Timothy's report, but yet he still says that they are lacking in their faith. That tells that that tells them, it tells us there was still room to grow. No matter how faithful you are, how how uh, fruitful you are as, as a Christian in your uh, work as a Christian, there are, there's always room. To grow, and then uh, you can go over to the very next chapter, verse one of this uh, same book. Finally, then brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received us, received from us, how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. I'm telling them to abound, to grow, and then there's also Second Peter one five through nine to note. But I think the point is made. The Bible has made it uh, abundantly clear that there's not a certain point that we are to grow to, to get to, to and then stop right there. But our faith is to continue to grow. And if it doesn't, just like that great white shark I mentioned, it will die. Uh, When we become spiritually content, then we become lukewarm. And do we have an example of a congregation, uh, Christians who became lukewarm, who became spiritually content. Well, yes, we do. Turn over then to Re- Re- Revelation, chapter three, verses fourteen through nineteen. This is to the. This was uh, one of John's uh, letters to the to the seven churches in Asia, and this letter was to the church in Laodicea. Now, their problem was they became lukewarm. Now, if you do a little bit of studying in the history of this area and, and the entire context of this area, is they, they lived, this congregation was in a very uh, prosperous and rich area. They had pretty much everything they needed. It was a very rich, it was a very wealthy community. Everyone pretty much had everything that they possibly needed, and everyone there was content. Well, that attitude of contentment kind of spread into their spirituality as well. I'm just going to go ahead and read what John writes here, Revelation 3, 14 through 19. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot or cold nor hot. Uh, The shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. In verse 17, if if you were listening, he he said, uh, you say I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. They were content. Uh, Spiritually, they were saying that and spiritually they were lukewarm. They needed to. Uh, repent of that spiritual attitude. Now, I don't really want to talk about uh, uh, this, this great threat, this looming threat to Christianity without also talking about how we fight it. I think it's very important if we talk about a problem, we need to talk about how we fix that as well. So how does a Christian combat this threat? Well, first, they need to remember their faith. Uh, remember, faith is an active faith. We need to remember to follow after the example of the Christians in the first century, like all those passages I just cited, and keep growing. And we also need to remember our focus, and our focus is to serve God. Uh, the Christian's purpose, the Christian's focus on earth is to be a light, Matthew 5, 14 through 16. It's to seek and save the lost, Luke 19, 10. It's to glorify God, 1 Peter 4, 16, and 1 Corinthians six twenty and 10, 31. And it's to fear God and keep his commandments, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Now, if you think about all of these objectives for the Christian, you'll notice that there isn't a set point when all of these are totally fulfilled. But there are things that we must continue to do. As long as we're alive, we must continue to be alive. As long as there are people in the world, there are souls to save. And as long as there is a God in heaven, He must be glorified and feared and obeyed. So that's how we combat spiritual contentment, which I believe is one of uh, one one of the greatest threats to Christianity.
1: I agree, man. That that was a lot of great points that you made right there, and uh, and in rapid fashion. I mean, that it's incredible. Um, I think I think we're going to list a lot of threats today and I mean we could just spend you know an hour talking about just one of these each but there's just there's so many threats that I think that we encourage Christians that you know it's really hard to depict you know just one Um, when you look at the first century you know from the very beginning there were a lot of great threats in Matthew 2 1 through 2 I mean you have the biggest threat to Christianity was ending Christianity before it was born and right after Christ was born. um, Herod tried to destroy Christianity before uh, Jesus was in the manger, you know, and, uh, you know, we wouldn't have Christianity without Christ. I think that's a great emphasis that we have to make. But then, you know, once Christ died and we have the church, there were a lot of great uh, threats that they had right after the day of Pentecost, right when the church was established. I mean, there was, of course, the greatest threat that we continue to have that's never changed. And it's worldly living, you know, where there is Christianity. There's also the world where there's religion. There is still godlessness. Um, But then there was also Judaism where, you know, there was a conflict with those first century Jews because they wanted to go back to what they had been practicing their entire lives. And they also wanted to reconcile both the old law and the new law and bring it together, which didn't work. But another thing that inflicted a lot of the uh, first century was Hellenism, which is Greek philosophy. And a lot of that was trying to enter into the church and law that tried to enter into uh, the world. Now that's not to say a lot of, you know, Grecian philosophy is bad. Um, It's when you have Grecian philosophy above godly philosophy, that's, the greatest issue but another thing of course was roman persecution you know there was uh, a great threat where your life is put to the test you know am i going to follow god or am i going to um, you know serve man and just kneel before the king or kneel before the emperor or caesar you know who am i going to respect and obey am i going to obey god or am i going to obey man and there's not really an enormous difficulty that we have in that area now there of course is it still remains to be a great threat to Christianity all around the world but in America you know we have some great luxuries there are some things that threaten Christianity concerning our government but it's not as bad when we look at it from that point of light but I want to jump off of one of the points that um that you were making and I think one big thing about um about all of that you know you're Uh, falling for faith and unfaithfulness and things like that a great threat to christianity is apostasy that's one of the greatest threats it's leaving christianity it's falling away from christianity and you look in the book of hebrews there's a great um there's a great point that's made throughout the entire book you know the book is about jesus is better and why is the writer pinning this down in this letter well, it's because there were many Christians whose lives were being threatened to fall away from Christianity. They were entering into apostasy. And the writer describes in Hebrews 6, uh, 4 through 6, he says, you know, like, you've tasted the heavenly gift. You have been given as partakers of the Holy Spirit. You've tasted good, the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. But then you notice in verse 6 where it says, and then have fallen away. I think, I think that's a terrible position that one could be in in this life is to be someone who has fallen away, fallen away from Christ, fallen away from grace, fallen away from Christianity. And he continues on writing and saying, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. I I don't want to be someone that's fallen away from Christ. All I want to do is I want to be a person that follows Jesus my entire life. Um, So how can I exactly follow Christ and not fall away? Because that's a great threat to Christianity is falling away. Well, you look at Hebrews 2.1. And it says, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not, and just like fall away, drift away from it. And he continues in that chapter talking about the great salvation that's found in Christ that you shouldn't neglect. You should remember it. Remember this message. Remember how powerful the works of Christ are in your life. And don't fall away. Don't drift away. Then you look at 3 in verse 12 and reads, Take care, brethren, that there not be any, of, any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, falls away from the living God. And so, you know, what do I need to do? I, I need to live for God. I need to take care, but I don't need to have a heart that's unbelieving. That's a big difficulty. I don't need to have, as it talks about in verse 13, a hardened heart. I don't need to be deceived by sin. I need to be a person that doesn't harden my heart or and provoke, but I need to follow God and not have unbelief, but believe strong-heartedly in Christ. Um, another is in 4.6, where it says, therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter in because of disobedience. So a great way of falling away is disobeying it. It's going the complete direction away from God. And that's not something we want to do. We want to run closer to God, not as far away as we can. But going back in, into chapter 6, We need to do something that you know you've already touched on and it's growing we need to grow in order that we don't you know fall away but also that we don't shrink we want to be adults in our faith we want to keep growing um you look at verse one in chapter six therefore leaving the elementary teachings about christ let us press on the maturity not, ha- not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washing and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So a great way for us to not fall away is to grow, that we don't you know, continue to focus on the elementary teachings. We need to go forward. We need to keep pressing on and growing in our maturity that we might learn more about God, learn more about Christ, to grow to know him, that we may grow to love him even more. Because if we grow to love him and know him, we won't fall away. We'll, we'll continue to want to be mature. We'll continue in our maturity, continue to press on, that we may not fall away. So I think that's a very big threat is, you know, apostasy and so our greatest way of growing is to continue to study the word. We need to look to God's message that we might learn more about him and love him.
0: Yeah. go, go adding on to that, um once again I'm going to bring up another threat that some people may not see coming, some uh, a threat that may come and no one even realize it and that's a uh, false doctrine. Um false doctrine can can creep in unawares it can deceive uh people into into following it it can tell the false doctrine maybe things it may be something that uh people want to hear it may be something that they that they love hearing that they want to hear that they uh that they want to believe and they'll follow it and you know condemn their own souls they'll fall away um concerning false doctrine or false teachers, Paul warned Timothy of the coming of false teachers in 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, which is why he told him preach the gospel, uh, 2 Timothy 4.2. I'm going to turn there and read that passage real quick. It's uh, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to to the truth and wander off into myths. These people will wander off into things that that they love hearing things that suit their own passions and accumulate for themselves. Teachers who tell them these things that feed what that feed them, what they want to hear uh, false doctrine is a, is a very big threat. One, a threat that, like I said, some people may not even see coming. Some people may not even know when it's there until they open up their Bibles and see the truth. But sometimes, uh, even though, even though they do that, they still can't see the truth because the teacher has twisted the word to a point they can't see the truth. And that's devastating. It's very unfortunate, but it happens. Uh, you also have Peter. Peter warned the brethren that he wrote to a false teacher. Second Peter, uh, let's see, I think it was chapter one, I think. Uh, two, yeah. I just, wrote, I just wrote down the wrong verse on the notes. Uh, in Second Peter 2, verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will fall their sensuality. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So, in this chapter, in in 2 Peter 2, Paul or Peter talks a lot about false teachers. He's warning them of what's coming. You need to be aware of what is coming. You need to be aware that these people will try and deceive you, they're going to try and creep in with these false doctrines and, uh, to, that will condemn your soul he also tells them that these false teachers they themselves will be doomed they will they themselves have a very very severe punishment waiting for them uh i'm not going to read the entire chapter but i'm just going to read uh 18 verses 18 through 22 uh for speaking uh, loud boasts of folly they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have even uh, known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. False doctrine and false teachers that teach this false doctrine, they spread it by deceit. They deceive people into believing this false doctrine that they're teaching. And once they have delivered, once they have been, once the people have been deceived and fall for this doctrine, their souls have been led astray. False doctrine deceives and seduces people into following it because it is something they want to hear. It tickles their ears as uh, I think it's the King James translation translates uh, 2 Timothy 4 uh, uh, verses 1 through 4 in that passage I just read. But it tickles their ears. It's something that they want to hear. False doctrine can ruin a faithful Christian because it will deceive that Christian, and they may fall for this deception. So once again, how do we combat this threat? Well, I'm going to go right back to 2 Timothy 4 too. Preach the gospel. Preach the word. Open up the Bible and see what the Bible has to say. Uh, as Paul told Timothy in light of this threat, we do the same thing he told Timothy to do. Preach the gospel. Uh, stick with what God said in his word. The only thing that's going to defeat false doctrine is God's word. So, what we need to do is we need to stick with the Bible. And if, as long as we stick with the Bible, we can never go wrong. But really, the only way we can fight false doctrine is with truth.
1: Well, amen to that. Um, and. Um... I mean, false teaching, false teaching, of course, I mean, that's, that's a great threat. Um, we, we can list off the majority of the, the list. I mean, it's not just within denominations. It's not just within people who don't really have a type of religious affiliation, but it's also within the church. You know, there's false teaching that occurs, and all of it needs to be combated. But the only thing to combat lies is the truth. And, of course, as you said, the source is God's word. Um, I think false teaching is a really, really big uh, deal. Um, But another thing is, I mean, the severity of the one that's saying it. Um, You and I are preachers, and there are those who are preaching. And I think a great threat is when we don't preach the Bible correctly. Oftentimes, we only teach the Bible as a type of rule book rather than a guidebook. And we teach it more of like do this And do this and do this but then we forget to tell why we tell them what to do just not why to do it yeah um and we talk without love we talk without sincerity we talk without compassion and those are things that are essential to teaching the love and truth you know you can't just give the truth and someone's going to obey it that's not how that works you have to do it with a right attitude because i mean you're talking about The gospel message this is something that can change people's lives forever but you have to notice that it's going to change them you don't want to change if you're being mean to someone you know when you're having an argument when the other person is being heated even if you know they might be wrong might be right and they get all heated they get angry they're not long suffering they're being wrathful towards you you don't you don't listen to a thing that they're saying you're not convinced by the words that they're speaking. You only listen to someone who's being loving, who's being caring, who is on your level and sympathizing with you. That's the only time that you're willing to listen to someone and maybe change your life. And we have to realize, you know, in order to convert someone in, in order to persuade someone with the truth, we have to do so with a correct attitude and we have to do it correctly But I think that we have to recognize that the Bible is capable of pricking people's hearts. So we have to use it properly. Now, the only way that people will, you know, have their hearts pricked is we have to let their guard down. Now, people are not going to have their guard up if we're teaching them the truth. I think that's one way that they'll let their guard down. But oftentimes, a lot of people have their hearts hardened and already ready, and they already believe what they believe right now. So what we have to do is we have to speak with a type of manner that is able to move them. We have to speak with emotion. We have to speak with, with passion, but oftentimes you know, we, we neglect the type of manner of which we can teach. And when we focus more on what to teach, you know, we forget about how you know, these are people and so one thing that I have to do is I have to get involved in these people's lives. Because when I have a relationship, when I have a bond with this person, you know, they're going to listen to me because I'm their friend. But also I need to speak with a type of manner where you know, this is a book that you need to know and I want for you to know. So I'm making a plea to you. I'm your advocate on your side. I am someone who is there for you, who's trying to show you the truth. And when you plead, Lead with them the word of God, and you proclaim it with such passion and with sincerity and truth, there's nothing that will stop them from obeying the truth. And it's going to change their lives forever, not just to obey the gospel, but to follow the teachings of the Bible that they might be a Christian of the New Testament to the best of their abilities. Now, I I think another thing, um, I I have a a few of my uh, kind of threats to Christianity as far as it goes with, you know, mentalities and ideologies, and I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of isms that you could list. I think some great ones are, you know, just off the bat, atheism. I mean, that's a very big conflicting threat to Christianity is when we have people who are in this world that outright deny the existence of God, who have a disbelief in God, and they inflict their philosophy on other people, and they say, you're stupid if you don't believe what we believe. Because if you believe in a God who created everything and not, you know, that everything just randomly happened, then you're stupid. Well, no, I mean, that's not... First off, I don't want to believe that because of your attitude. I've never listen to an atheist spokesperson who speaks with love i i look at every single one that i've looked at and all of them are mean-spirited individuals who think that everyone is stupid except for them they only look at themselves as the smartest person in the room when in fact they're ignorant and they don't look at the truth they don't look at it from perspectives of you know the bible they don't look at the bible to begin with to try and show their disbelief in God. They don't look at the philosophical arguments that have been there for centuries that prove the existence of God. They just deny it. And I mean, there's so many other things, but I mean, atheism is a big thing. Another one is agnosticism, which is saying, you know, um, I don't have the courage or the ability to say what I believe in, you know? And honestly, agnosticism is just kind of, it's one of those things where, You're just saying, I haven't studied and I don't want to study. At least an atheist has the courage to say, you know, from what I know right now, I don't believe. And then with me, I'm a theist. I have studied and therefore I believe. The agnostic is saying, I, I don't want to make anybody mad and I just want to be different. And you know, I haven't studied and I won't study because I want to remain in my ignorance. And that's kind of what you're just fine with is agnosticism. But then you have secularism where you're saying, I have nothing to do with Christianity. There's no religious uh, or spiritual basis. And that's what a lot of uh, threats are in our society today. Concerning Christianity is not even having the interest in religious study. And then another thing is naturalism where everything arises from natural properties and causes. And you don't, believe in spiritual or supernatural explanations and are excluded or you know discounted but then i think a big issue that we have is um you know it's within our schools it's within our society it's within uh the science community it's evolution and it's a conflicting doctrine against the origins of the universe and the existence of god and there are a lot of people who are in the religious field who try and you know they try and reconcile this doctrine to the Bible, but it never fits. And, um, and it's sad, but I think evolution is a big thing. Um, another one's materialism, where you have a mentality of the physical being a primary motivator, and you have a tendency to consider material possessions and physical comforts as more important than you know, your spiritual values. And I think we need to, like, like we talked about earlier, you know, it's not just within children, but also within adults. We need to have a mentality that's not focused on myself, that's not focused on things. It's not about, you know, uh, my kid's on the soccer team and I got to go to practice or, you know, my kid is playing football or it's not focusing on, you know, my job and only my job and my interests that I have. You know, when all I spend my time doing is the things of life rather than the things that actually matter, like Christianity like going to worship on Sunday, like going to Bible class on Wednesday, like going to this youth meeting or going to this gospel meeting or just studying my Bible daily, you know, and I don't focus on those things, that's a great threat to Christianity because I'm not even focusing on it. And then a great one, of course, is denominationalism. You know, it's, um, as a as a dictionary reads as an autonomous branch of the christian church it's the division of the biblical church that practices opposing doctrines from the first century church that's what a denomination is that's a great threat because you have all of these false churches when there's only one church and so it conflicts the truth of christianity and something that you know we don't necessarily have in america as big you know we oftentimes When we preach, we talk about, you know, money is an idol or, you know, your things, your iPhone is an idol or, you know, whatever it might be. But we forget idolatry still happens in this world and it's still a very big problem. Idolatry continues to be a threat and I think it will forever be a threat to Christianity. It's putting something before God, but furthermore, it's a practice of other gods. And so that is, of course, a great, great threat to Christianity. Um, but those are just, you know, my isms that I've, I've looked at.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, whenever someone thinks of idolatry, they usually think of the, uh, the golden calf or they'll think of this little wooden figure. And, you know, that, that's usually what comes to people's minds. I mean, cause it's what comes to my mind when I think about idolatry, but that's not necessarily what idolatry is. Idolatry is whatever you put before God, whatever you look to uh, as a priority, whatever you look to and put before God, that's idolatry. That's what idolatry is. Um, yeah, there's lots of things in our society today in our world that we may put before God that become our idols. Um, now there's, uh, I I just have one more, um, that I would, I would want to talk about. Um, I think another big threat to Christianity is fear. Uh, fear, I think, can become a very big threat to Christianity because, or I'll talk about that in a second. But there's there, there's a quote from there's a quote from one of my favorite book series, uh, and it it, it says fear is the mind killer. Now, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I, I think there's a lot of biblical truth to that as well. Uh, that's from, that quote's from the, the book Dune. I think it was written in the 60s or something like that. Herbert. Um, What's up?
1: I said, oh, I thought that was Harry Potter. Oh, <laughs> no, I'm just playing. I knew
0: it was Dune. Um, but I think there's a lot of biblical truth to that very, very short statement. Because I think, two or 3,000 years before this author ever penned that phrase. I think God was already teaching us that lesson, that fear is the mind killer. Uh First thing that comes to my mind is Numbers chapter 13 and 14. Now, if you're familiar with Numbers chapter 13 and 14, you'll remember that those are the two chapters where Israel approached the borders of the promised land. Uh, You know, God had promised Israel uh, before they, before they, they exited Egypt, um, God promised to Israel that they would be taken to a land. They'd be taken to a land that flows with milk and honey. And Moses, you know, he went and he went and, uh, preached to these Israelites in bondage and he let them out. Um, and they wandered, they wandered the wilderness up until they got to the borders of the promised land. To the, to the borders of this land, which flows of milk and honey, their land that was, uh, that was promised to them. Now they get to this border, and uh, they send out these spies. They send out these spies to go and scout out the land before they start their invasion. However, these spies bring back a bad report. These spies come back and they say, we can't go up against these people. We can't go up against the inhabitants of this land. They're, they're huge. Their cities are walled up to the sky. We can't stand a chance against these guys. And what happened? That bad report instilled fear in the minds of the Israelites. Now, what happened? They had fear. They, they became fearful. There are three things that fear killed that day. Fear killed their desire to follow God. Fear killed their trust in God, and fear killed their hope in God's promise. Fear is the mind killer, and we see that demonstrated in these two chapters. First, it killed their desire to follow God. Uh, It was God's will that they were to enter into this land and take it, but something kept them from following God's will, and that was fear. They became too afraid to follow God. And second, it killed their trust in God. In those two chapters, you'll hear them say, you know, God brought us here just to kill us. He brought us here just to have the people in this land just slaughter us. Fear killed their trust in God. God had provided for them ever since they left Egypt. God had proven himself to them over and over and over again. But fear convinced them that God just brought them there to die. And third, finally, it killed their hope in God's promise. Because they would not follow God, because they lost trust in God, that generation of the Israelites were not, were not going to be able to enter into that promised land. They were going to wander the wilderness until they died. And, their, and the second generation of Israelites of, of Israel would, would grow up and they would inherit the land not them because of fear they would not enjoy god's promise and that those two chapters have a lot of new testament application for christians today christianity isn't just a title and it's not and christianity isn't even just a lifestyle it's both of those things but it's not just those things it's also most importantly a mindset if you want to truly kill a christian you need to kill their mind and what will kill the mind of a Christian? Fear. Fear can truly kill a Christian because they can become more afraid of that which can only kill the body and not the soul and completely forget about the one, the God who can kill both body and soul. I'm going to read real quick Matthew 10, 28. Matthew 10, 28. This is uh, during the limited commission um, when when the apostles would be sent out to preach just to Israel, not the Gentiles, but just to Israel, and Christ is encouraging them. He tells them here, do not be afraid, verse 28, do not, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You don't need to be afraid of people who may persecute you. You don't need to be afraid of those who only kill the body. All right, the worst that can happen to you is you die. But what's going to happen if you're faithful to God when you die? You're going to go to heaven. You're going to have a reward waiting for you. Uh, people like to often cite Revelation uh, 21.8 as uh, all liars go to hell. But when you go and look at that verse, interesting, interestingly enough, liars are actually listed last in that list of, of sinners who are going to have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. And what's the first one that's listed there in Revelation 21.8? It's the cowardly. It's those who are afraid who are going to suffer an eternity in hell. Out of fear, Christians may neglect God's commandment to evangelize. Uh, out of fear of being made fun of or losing their friends or maybe very unfortunately being disowned by their families. But It's something we need to do regardless. Fear can make a Christian lose their trust in God. Christians, however, have no reason to be afraid. So how do we combat fear? Well, we need to remember God. We need to remember how God has proven himself over and over and over and over again that he provides for his people. And we need to also remember our reward in heaven, Revelation 2.10. Revelation 2.10 is a verse that I hear a lot of people uh, cite as uh, be faithful to death and you will receive that that crown of life. But we also need to remember the first part of that verse as well because it really adds a lot more significance to that verse, to A lot adds a lot more significance to being faithful unto death because that sounds easy, but what about when times are hard? Because times are hard to, for these people in Revelation 2.10. Verse says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. They're about to suffer some big things. They're about to go through a lot of trouble. But, but be faithful unto death. And I, Christ speaking, I will give you the crown of life. Christians have no reason to be afraid. But it's it's one thing that um, that will uh condemn a lot of Christian souls will make a lot of Christians fall from grace because they become too afraid to follow God they became they become so afraid that they lose trust in God and therefore their fear will uh, make them miss out on heaven
1: yeah I I think that's a great point about fear is I think it it happens to everyone, you know, and um, it holds people back from what you can truly accomplish. And when you're too afraid to follow God, you know, you're going to withhold everything that you could possibly do because all things are possible through Christ, but it's impossible if you fear. It's impossible if you withhold yourself from accomplishing these things yeah um i think i think there are a lot of other things we could talk about you know we could talk about division division's a great problem within the church
0: oh yeah Uh, I, i don't even know why i didn't list that one actually division that is that is a big threat to the church today over just very small things
1: i agree i mean color of the carpet should have been red but it's blue yeah who likes trick voice
0: uh, the Lord's Supper being before or after the sermon, that'll that'll split a congregation.
1: My prayer should have been three point five minutes. What's yeah. wrong with him? I'm just playing. I, I don't know if I've heard that one, but <laughs> um yeah, I, I think division's a big problem. Um and unity I mean, it, it was the first century, first Corinthians. I mean, you you have that was an early problem. And that's why, why there there's a call for unity. Um, But another thing I think is also ingratitude, you know, a heart of ingratitude. It won't get you anywhere, Um, but it's also one of those things that, um, you know, led the people of God and Israel astray was their ingratitude. That's why they were judged. That's why they were thrown into exile. That's why they were punished on many accounts was because they were ungrateful. And that led to them falling away because they would forget about God and they looked at other things rather than him. But I think the greatest threat to Christianity is the Christian. Um, I think it's the church. Because not within itself, of course. I don't mean that it's, you know, the New Testament Christian is the greatest threat. I mean, it's those that are Christians who lack Christian values, who have immorality in their lives. It's those Christians that have a lack of knowledge have an ignorance of truth it's those christians that have a lack of christ the insufficiency of all sufficiency and so when you look at you know lack of christian virtues the great battle that we have in the new testament is the works of the flesh versus the fruits of the spirit and so you have the works of the flesh in galatians 5 and you read at um verse 19 that you have immorality, you have impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, corrosing, you know all these things. These are practices that Christians even do. And you had that in your past, but you continue to do it today. And that, of course is a great threat to Christianity is when you practice the works of the flesh rather than the fruits of the spirit. When you continue in chapter five and then you look at um, the ending, when you look at verse 22, where we need to be a people of love, a people of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, fruit, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And, you know, when we don't do these things, of course it's going to be a great threat to the church because we have a certain way for things to work. God has laid it out very plainly, how we need to live. If we don't live like that, it's a threat to Christianity. It's a threat to the church. It'll create, like we just talked about, you know, division. It'll create strife. It'll create great troubles and difficulties and trials for the church if we continue in those things. But just like Paul talks about to the church at Colossae, set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. That's a great issue, is when you focus on And you can continue on that list and you look at, you know, if you look at the things below where you practice sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, idolatry. If you do those things, such as, you know, continuing on that list, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscure talk, then yeah, it's a threat to the church. Because you're a new person, you're a Christian, you need to follow in the type of lifestyle that Christ has laid out for us. We need to seek the things that are above. That means seek that heavenly lifestyle because that's the people we are. That's the place we want to be. We need to be holy. We need to be loving, compassionate. We need to be kind, humble, meek, patient. We need to bear with one another. We don't need to complain. We need to forgive one another because when someone wrongs me, well, Christ loved me enough that he would forgive me. So I need to have that same exact attitude, but we need to have harmony with one another. We need to put on love. We need to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly that we would follow him and live for him. But I think another thing we have to realize is, you know, within Christian virtues, we need to remember who we are. Because when we forget who we are as Christians, of course we will follow into those lifestyles of the world. We need to remember that we are people just like Jesus began to talk about in his Sermon on the Mount, we're people who are poor in spirit. We are people who mourn. We are people who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, a people who are merciful, who are pure in heart, who are peacemakers, who rejoice in being persecuted for righteousness sake. And a people who are the salt of the earth and the light of this world. We're to be an influence and an impact that changes the world and the lives around us we need to be those people we need to remember who we are and remember whose we are that we may be the christians that we are to be and so i think a great way for us to you know not lack in our christian values but to put on those christian values is to look at that those lists and you know apply it to our lives and we could continue on a list for a while i think just to give a simple application of that is we need to think about God. We need to have a lifestyle where we sit down, we take the time, and we pray. We talk to God. But then we also listen to what he has to say. We read the Bible. We see what he has to say. And then we meditate on those thoughts. You need to think about that constantly. It needs to be in your mind, because otherwise, you know, it's just gonna continue to have that same junk that's in your head that you had beforehand. Or maybe it's on things that don't even matter. We need to focus on the things that truly matter. Now, all of these things take sacrifice. We don't like that word, but it's a difficult thing to practice is sacrificing. It's giving up something for something that I need. I need to sacrifice the time out of my day that God has given me. He's given me time, and oftentimes we misuse it for the things we want to do rather than the things we should do. And we need to spend the time in our days to dwell on God and to think about the things that matter. But another issue, I mean, we've already talked about this, but it's ignorance of truth and a lack of knowledge and just some elementary things and subjects that we need to focus on and already know. I think young children should be taught up in these things. But if you don't have these things, apply these things. You need to have a complete knowledge of the fundamentals of faith. You have to know Christian ver- uh, Christian values and doctrine. You need to know the acts of worship. You need to know the plan of salvation. You need to know these things that matter. Doctrine is important. It's not something that we should just throw aside. We need to focus on those things, but that, that's not it. We also need to have a comprehension of biblical themes like love, like salvation, like christ that you can find throughout the entire bible that's a great theme we need to focus on those themes but a great problem that i notice in today is that we don't know what the bible says we don't have a true understanding of the text and then another thing is we have a fear of getting deeper in the text we need to look at the bible and we need to read it but we also need to preach it we need to study to the best of our ability what does this say How can I use this for my life? I need to know what the Bible says in order for me to live by the Bible. And then, of course, another great knowledge and gem of truth is apologetics. I need to know not every answer of apologetics, but I need to know the existence of God. I need to know the inspiration of the Bible. I need to know these big basic things. But the greatest threat that I see within the Christian life If a Christian is the greatest threat to Christianity, is someone who has a lack of sufficiency, a lack of Christ. When you're without Christianity, I can think of no greater threat to you than this. To be without Christ is to have none of the benefits or blessings found within him. The great danger of Christianity is a Christian who is lacking Christ in their life and as a result, not living like him. Because if we don't live like Christ, well, then there's greater dangers found within that. And there's no space, there's no place for people who are fake followers. Yet in the first century, Pharisees, Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, you had all these people who were fakes. And that was under the old law. Of course, that continues under the new law. You have people who think they're better than everyone else or people who don't even spend the time to even... Focus on what the Bible says, and when you don't have the mind of Christ, you won't react like Christ, and there's no room for heathens in the Lord's kingdom. The only people that we have room for in the Lord's church is people who are set apart for God, people who truly love God, people who are faithful. I don't mean that to sound like mean or anything like that, but that's what God desires, he desires for you to be well pleasing to him, not that I please myself and like say I'm doing it for him and it's okay. No, I need to live my life the way he wants me to live. And a great danger that we can have in lacking Christ is a lack of motivation. It's when we forget the purpose and we want to stop doing what we're doing. We want to stop Christianity in our life because we don't. Know what we're doing and why we're doing it. So, when we forget our motives, we don't want to move. And so, we need to be reminded of our motivations. But another great thing that I can think of, of like, you know, talking about the Christian and talking about great threats, you've mentioned it a couple of times, and I've wanted to bring it up, and you've motivated me to keep going and want to do it. But it was Revelations chapter two and chapter three. And um, you know, you look at the seven churches at Asia, and there were great threats that they incurred at that time. You know, you have where you know they're known for their deeds; they're known for these things that they've done. Uh, You look at Ephesus; they were once on fire for Christ, but now becoming indifferent. They're a backsliding church. He's saying, "I know your deeds; I know the toil; I know the perseverance, and you can't tolerate evil men." And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and you say, you know, they're not true. So you have perseverance, you have endured for Christ's sake, but you've left your first love. You've left Christ. You've forgotten your motives. You've forgotten what you're doing, and you forgot the most important thing, Christ. And then you go and you look at Smyrna, and you look in verses 8 through 11, and you notice how they have been persecuted. They um, are poor, but Yet they're faithful and they are resolute. So they're a steadfast church. And thankfully, there's there's no criticism that's given to this church. They are noted for their tribulation and their poverties, that they are rich in their spirit. And he gives them something that's very powerful. And I think you already noted it, but you know, fear is a great threat to us. But we have Christ who's there to comfort us and say. There's no need to fear. Don't fear. You might suffer. You might be thrown in prison. You might have your faith tested and there might be tribulation, but be faithful unto death. And I'll give you a great gift. I'll give you that crown of life. Eternity is waiting for you if you're faithful and you continue doing what you've been doing. Then there's Pergamus in verses 12 through 17. And you see that they were idolatrous. They were seduced into corrupt beliefs and pagan riches rituals and you know they followed and held the teachings of uh Balaam and they kept the teaching of Balak and they allowed these things to be a stumbling block and they committed acts of immorality and what they're told to do is repent 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 of what you've done and then you look at um Thyatira that one's really hard to say Thyatira and he's saying I know your deeds I know your love I know your faith your service your perseverance but yet you tolerate Jezebel. Yet you tolerate idolatrousness and you're seduced into corrupt beliefs and pagan rituals. You're a lax pagan church and you allow these things to happen to enter into the church and it's become a sickness. It's destroying you. And then you have uh, Sardis in chapter three in verses one through six. He's saying, I know your deeds again. He's saying, I know your works, but wake up. And strengthen the things that remain. Because you're dead. You look like you're alive. You look like you're living. But you're really dead. A church in name only. But without, without results. And you are spiritless. You don't have any fruits. You have no evidence to prove that you are following me. And so you're a dead church. You're not even living. So come alive again. Be reborn. Remember the things that you've already received. You've already heard these things. Keep it. Obey it. Wake up and repent. And then Philadelphia. Again, another church that is given no criticism. They're a favored church. They're shown to be exemplary, faithful to God's word, and filled with his love because they have kept the word of God. They've persevered. And they haven't denied the, not the name of Christ. But then, like you've already mentioned with excellence, you talked about Laodicea. Now, they were self indulgent. They were rich, they were full of worldly pride, but they had no feet to stand on. They're kind of like a hypocrite where they are people who are in the middle of a fence. They can't decide whether they wanna go on the left or the right, they're just stuck in the middle. And so you're not hot, you're not cold, you're just worthless, you're lukewarm. And you know what happens when you drink lukewarm water or lukewarm coffee? What's the reaction you want to have when you drink a Starbucks that's lukewarm? You want to spit it out. And that's exactly what Christ is saying. I would vomit you out of my mouth. Why? Because you're worthless. You're not even, like, at least if you were cold, I could tell you to be warm. But I can't. I can't tell you that. Because you have an issue within yourselves to where you can choose. You're lukewarm. You're lacking and an important thing, which is your faith. And you need to be on fire again. But the great lesson that you see throughout the entire time is you see one message. You see one message. Overcome. Overcome these things. That Christ would not have given us a message to these seven churches if he didn't have an application. If he believed that there was nothing that could be done, you know what he'd do? He'd strike them down and destroy them, and he'd bring the others into eternity, and he'd end everything. But that's not what he did. What he did is he said, there's opportunity. I'm giving it to you. I'm withholding my judgment upon you because there's a lot that's about to happen. You're going to endure persecution. There's a lot that's going to happen. But you know what? You have some problems. You need to fix it and overcome them because I believe you can do that. So obey the things that I've given you. These are my critiques. This is what you need to apply. And if they don't do that, well guess what? They're only going to keep going the same way that they have been going. So the greatest threat to the Christian is an incorrect faith in Christ. I think that's a a great great problem. Um and this will be my my last thing that I say about it is you know it, it's a great issue if we don't have a true faith in Christ and if we don't truly believe in Christ. So in order to have a correct view of the person, we have to believe Jesus was real. He truly was real. But not only that, but that Jesus was the Messiah. He fulfilled all the prophecies down to the last detail that he was the king that God had promised. But also the last is that Jesus was both man and deity. He's the son of man and the son of God, 100% human, 100% God so we have to have a correct view of Christ but then again i need to also believe that the bible is true that it's inspired and that it has historical accuracy a lot of times we tend to go to you know other documents of history and try and defend the bible or you know a lot of times people attack the bible because you're quoting the bible look at you you're a religious person but that's attacking the authenticity and accuracy of these historical documents we only need the bible that's all i need it's a credible document with incredible accounts i don't have to go somewhere else to prove that the bible's true because the bible's already true if you're trying to say that this is that we don't have enough just quoting the bible as the truth that this is a historical account that jesus christ really happened that he really walked this earth, that he actually died and was resurrected from the dead. And it's written down in these passages. Well, then I have an issue because one thing that I, I I will note from one of my teachers, uh, Rick Brumbach, he talked about in our, uh, our Greek three class, um, I don't know, I think it was like the second to last week of school a couple of months ago. And, um, and we were talking about how accurate and how awesome the manuscripts we have of the Bible are and how close they are to the actual accounts. And how so, so many people question these documents and whether or not this person actually wrote this or if this is even an actual thing. Well, we don't question Aristotle's work. The closest manuscript we have is it's a couple hundred years, but then you have the actual manuscript of Mark. Well, it's very, very close to when it was written. So it's a very early manuscript. You're talking about Aristotle's work, which no one questions. Who questions Aristotle's work? Who questions Shakespeare's work? Their manuscripts are not as early They're very later on. And so the Bible is very accurate. It's very concise. These manuscripts are dependable. And so when I look at the Bible, I have to realize this is true. There's evidence that this is genuine, that Christ really existed, but also that the resurrection actually happened and that there is hope and that the atonement is available and it is powerful. And what's found within that is the compassion of Christ, his motive, which is love then the cross of christ his action which is the sacrifice that brings about his results the cure of christ salvation and then finally the church of christ his location reconciliation and so we need to understand and we need to follow his teachings so we can have a correct faith and belief of christ that these threats will not oppose us but that we might have true christianity
0: It's kind of surprised when you said the greatest threat to Christianity is the Christian, it's uh, Christian himself, but you made some pretty solid points about that. I remember once when we were uh, or while while I was still at the Memphis School of Preaching, uh, my teacher told us a story of he there was this guy that he was studying with and that he was going that he was trying to convert to Christ. And I think it was, he was going to about, he was going to, he was about to go study the Bible with this person. And he invited one of uh, the deacons along, one of the deacons at the, at the uh, church he worked at. He invited one of the deacons along. And so they get in their car, they drive over to that person's house. And as soon as they get out, that deacon looks at the man that they're about to study with and says, you know, you're going to hell, right? and that was it. The door was shut. Uh, my Let's just say my teacher never got to have that study with him. and that person's probably still lost today. I think the Christian can do a lot, a lot of harm. The Christian can do a lot of harm today. Um, you, you, I mean, you made some pretty good points about that. Uh, Christians who don't live right, you know, Christians who go back to living as the world lives, not living uh, godly. Christians are supposed to be examples. And I can't think of anything that would harm the church more than for a Christian to be a bad example, to go out into the world. And he's supposed to be an example of how Christ lives, an example of what the Bible teaches. And he goes out into the world and he's doing all these disgusting acts, all these sinful acts, and he's being a very poor example. But that's what... But that's what, how people look at him. People are looking at him and, and seeing him do all these things and thinking that's what they do in the church? That's what the church is like? Are you kidding me? He's acting just like I am. I'm not even a Christian. I don't even believe in God. That's, that's how some Christians act. They act no different than those outside of Christ. And that's sad. That is pathetic. We're supposed to be an example. We're supposed to be sanctified, set apart. From how the world is. But some people talk just like the world. Some people act just like the world. They aren't sanctified. They aren't set apart. They're a poor example of Christ. A poor example of how a Christian is supposed to be. Because of that. They aren't making a positive influence. In anyone's lives. On anyone's soul. A positive influence for the church. They're not being that at all. They're doing more harm. To the church than than persecution than persecuting the church. They're doing more harm to the church than than if the government were to, were, were to start burning down church buildings and committing Christians to prison. They're doing more harm to the church than than that. Yeah, I I agree with you. Sometimes the biggest threat to the church is actually the ch- Christian himself. And that's not how it's supposed to be. That's that's feels weird saying. I mean, that, that is pretty weird saying. But yeah, that's that's the reality of it christians need christians need to repent of that
1: i i think that's i think that's one of the biggest issues like i mean we you look at it in the bible and a lot of times you know that's what that's what paul is writing about he's writing about you know you're the one to blame corinth you know who's the greatest threat to to your evangelistic works yourselves Exactly. They were
0: doing exactly the same things. Actually, worse. Uh, Was it chapter seven with uh, that guy who was sleeping with uh, his his stepmom? And Paul was like, bro, even the Gentiles, even those outside of Christ, don't even commit acts such as that. Even people outside of Christ don't even do that. But yet (laughs) you are
1: yeah They're it's...
0: committing worse acts than, than than actual sinners people outside of christ
1: yeah it's it's really crazy i mean i'm trying to even think of how i can say this i, well, I think
0: you know, we also need to wrap up because i think we're going like a lot longer i might be wrong but it feels like we're going a lot longer than usual so let's go ahead and wrap up now but going with what mm-hmm. you're about to say
1: People are listening this long, they can endure. So just like the first century church. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just playing. Um, I, I think a, a really big thing is, you know, I, I wouldn't encourage, you know, just beating yourself up all the time. But a really big thing that we need to do as Christians is reevaluate ourselves and encourage ourselves to be better. We need to start living The kind of lifestyle that Christ had, because, you know, we're not perfect and we don't need to use that as an excuse, but we need to use that as a motivator because there's so much room that I can, I can work with, that I can add to my life so I can be more like him. And so I need to evaluate what are the things I'm lacking so I can apply them, but I need to also reevaluate my life so that way I can realize, you know, am I to blame or. Am I just okay? Like I need to realize I have flaws, but there, there are problems that I can work on. Yeah. Now, a sincere Christian will realize, you know, I'm okay and I'm not perfect, but I'm working on it. You know, I'm, I'm still living the Christian life and I cherish the Christian values. But when you're someone that just, you know, lives your life the way you want to, yeah, you're to blame. When you don't have that sincere heart to challenge yourself to be better, then yeah, I mean, and, and you're allowing things to influence you rather than God to influence you. And oh, I mean, there's so many problems that we've talked about today, and there's so many more that we could continue to talk about uh, for a while. But if that is me, then yeah, I'm to blame. I am the Christian that is to blame for threatening Christianity itself. And that's an issue.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, anyway, Really appreciate all the study you've done into this subject. I made a lot of great points. Um, I appreciate that. Um, I I guess that's everything. I I mean, I guess that was everything you wanted to talk about. That was everything I'm going to cover right now. Um, All right. I guess we'll just close out with that. Um, Thank you all for listening. uh, And we'll see you all next time.